There's a part of this hundred-year history of organized crime and intelligence operations that is, well, either embraced by historians, categorically misunderstood by empaths, or flat-out weaponized by the nastiest among us. Here it is. The men who organized crime were Jewish and Italian immigrants who collaborated regardless of nation of origin, tribe, or creed because of their shared worship of money and power. I honestly cannot measure how important to each of them their individual heritage was, since what their business meant to them individually triumphed overall. Plus, gangsters are epic liars. So coming to understand them falls under that old saying of watch what they do, not what they say. They hung together, crimed together, fought together, built an empire together day by day, and then retreated into their own corners of family and tradition in the rare moments of rest. They were, nonetheless, Jews and Roman Catholics of Russian or Eastern European origin or Italian. They knew this about one another. They acknowledged it regularly about one another. They lived by both violence and racial slang, yet worked together without the malice of racism. They lived their stereotypes, yet transcended them when it came to loyalty and the almighty dollar. They brought their own into the enterprise, reaching into their individual neighborhood gangs that shared the same creed, tribe, and nation of origin, then worked across those would-be barriers seamlessly while always understanding their differences. Meyer Lansky had his core crew of fellow Jews, like Bugsy Siegel, Abner Longies Willman, and Louis Lepke Buchhalter. Lucky Luciano had his Italians, Frank Costello, Vito Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Albert Anastasia. And for all of these men, at one point or another, their heritage was a form of currency. It was a part of their identity to be leveraged, where that made a difference to the accumulation and protection of wealth and power. But it simply cannot be assumed that it mattered to any of them for any reason other than that. In one famous case, an associate of Myers named Dutch Schultz even threw out his religion to adopt that of the Italians in order to curry a favor that he needed to survive. Ultimately, it didn't work. But that's a prime example of the import of heritage for these men. We make a grave mistake when we project what our own heritage or religion means to us onto gangsters, as if they share it. That mistake keeps us from both understanding them and being able to honestly discuss them, where they used their heritage as a shield. If you can grasp this, 
I promise you, you won't feel uncomfortable where we touch on it. And we will touch on it. Because the meaning of ethnic and cultural differences to these men is a part of the history we need to grasp in order to understand the world beneath us. There simply is no getting around any of this, no matter how politically incorrect it may sound. The slice of the population that came to America in the late 19th and early 20th century who established organized crime were immigrant tribes, families, and communities, Jews and Italians. And then there were the Irish. Good grief, they were violent and greedy and cohesive. They stuck to their own. On one hot summer day, after Meyer and Lecky had initially met, but before they officially teamed up, they had an experience in the East River. Lucky and his Italian gang were swimming in the same area as Meyer and his friends. Then, the Irish showed up. The gang that Meyer had attacked with a casserole pot was back for revenge. Now, the Italians hated the Irish for their own reasons. It was real old-school New York City territorial shit. As the story goes, Someone, no one knows who, had a knife with him in the water. The Irish came close to Meyer. A fight in the water ensued. A scream pierced the air. And there was blood. Everyone ran for the shore, grabbed their clothes, and ran home. Later that night, the body of the leader of the Irish gang the boy who had been harassing Meyer for months washed up on the bank. Everyone hated the Irish. And now, the young Italians and Jews in the neighborhood knew that by fighting together, any enemy or obstacle was as good as a dead boy floating downriver. In our first episode, I introduced you to one half of the underworld by diving into the origin of organized crime, the partnership of Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano. And in our last episode, we met the other half that formed the world beneath us, the spy who first hunted them, Elizabeth Friedman, and her two loves, her husband William, and the art of code-breaking. When we left Elizabeth, she and William alone had just done the epic feat of decrypting every coded enemy message intercepted by the United States during the First World War. Seven days after that war ended, on November 18, 1918, Congress, always late, passed the temporary wartime. Prohibition Act. This set the stage for the ratification of the 18th Amendment two months later. And by the end of 1919, the passing of the Volstead Act, overriding Woodrow Wilson's veto. The following January, prohibition went into effect. America's food and drink establishments and liquor merchants went dry, and the blood began to flow.
Through strategic assassinations and all-out Tommy gun massacres, America's original gangsters formed around the bloody business of illegal booze. The export, import, distribution, and sale of premium top-shelf alcohol. Courage in a bottle. It was a business that, in Meyer Lansky's words, would make them bigger than U.S. Steel. Elizabeth Friedman would crash into that enterprise, bridging the realms of mobsters and spies. And although I've already teased, and you may have already known, Elizabeth's legendary story of cracking rum runner codes and disrupting the prohibition profiteering of gangsters, you don't know this. You don't know the men, the organization, that was really behind all that liquid. No one wore a suit like Arnold Rothstein. When you're powerful enough to fix the World Series, finance a casino in Central Park during Prohibition, install Herbert Hoover as president and FDR as governor in a single election year, and bring the downfall of Tammany Hall with your untimely death, well, your tailor is your second wife. Arnold Rothstein came by his criminality honestly. He was born into it. The son of a wealthy racketeer, turned businessman, turned philanthropist, Rothstein grew up in the age of robber baron industrialists, watching men like Rockefeller, Carnegie, and the Vanderbilts pull the levers of power to bend a nation and its economy to their will. He got how it all worked. And that meant Arnold Rothstein could make his own fortune. There was just one business model at the heart of Rothstein's constellation of rackets. He was the first real fixer. Rothstein set his sights on future events, things that were scheduled, where normally a result was unpredictable fixed it ahead of time, then placed his bets. Although he'd be remembered post-mortem as a gambling addict, his actual legacy is best described as gaming. Elections, sporting events, even prohibition. Rothstein knew the outcomes before the votes were cast, games were played, laws were passed. He was a planner a thinker, an entrepreneur in the purest sense. So much so, Rothstein garnered a nickname, The Brain. And because of the Gilded Age status into which he was born, Rothstein had all he needed to ensure the fix was in. He sat perched inside the cortex of America's neural network of extreme wealth 
and political power. Arnold the Brain Rothstein was fucking connected. Import-export shipping barons? Yep, he knew those men. Steel and textile tycoons? Yep, knew them. Railroad and real estate moguls? Huh, they begged him for party invites. Politicians? In the pocket. Newspaper titans? They were the thirstiest clients, who in turn made Arnold famous. Bankers? Well, they were his specialty. The world was Arnold Rothstein's rigged slot machine. He stuck his wish in the coin slot, pulled the lever, and came up blazing sevens. By the time the Volstead Act went into effect, establishing a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcohol. The man running the underbelly of Gilded Age Titans was legend. Arnold Rothstein's name was as well known on the streets as it was on Long Island's Gold Coast. So, of course, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano had him in their sights. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Okay, it's been an episode or so since I talked about Meyer and Lucky as characters. Now that you get Rothstein's world, his New York, let's remember the New York that was Meyer's and Lucky's. They were brought to America by their parents as young boys, immigrants who landed in the lower Manhattan ghettos. I usually roil against the glamorized version of the American mafia that some of our great filmmakers thrust on us. But here, it does help to reference a film to visualize the era. Remember in The Godfather II, when a poor, young Vito Corleone, played by De Niro, was raising his family in Little Italy? There was a local Don, an extortionist that ruled over the neighborhood. The character was named Don Fonucci, and he wore that white hat and suit and had an old-world mustache. That was a mustache Pete. Specifically, a blackhand mafia boss based on real-life Don, Lupo the Wolf, for those of you who are Godfather aficionados. So when you visualize Meyer and Lucky's New York, think of young Vito Corleone. Now, think back on that story I told you about young Meyer Lansky running a floating crap game in the days just before he and Lucky teamed up. At the time, in Arnold Rothstein's New York, a young kid running a crap game in the ghettos would not have attracted the brain's attention. But, because of Meyer's New York, it did get the attention of the neighborhood's biggest mustache Pete, Joe Masseria. Remember? So much so, Masseria sent his muscle 
to collect a cut from Meyer. And Meyer fought back using his own muscle, a Jewish boxer hot from the gambling circuit, no less, to beat the tortellini out of Masseria's Italian thugs over a two-bit crap game. Now that would not have gone unnoticed to the brain. And Rothstein would definitely have noticed that Masseria didn't immediately kill Meyer in return. Frankly, I can't believe that either. Lucky must have made quite the deal with Masseria to save Meyer's skin. Meyer and Lucky were building a name for themselves individually. Then they came together and had the vision and balls to take on the underworld. Those kids were hungry. And for Meyer especially, the famed Arnold Rothstein had a full buffet. Every biographer tells the story the same way. It was Meyer Lansky who sought out Arnold Rothstein. He leaned in to the brain, made an effort to impress him, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Meyer and Lucky would be Arnold's crew, just as they were for Masseria and his ilk. You see, those old-world bosses, the Mustache Peets, were an obstacle to Meyer and Lucky's bootlegging ambitions, one they had no choice but to seduce into their camp. To get off the ground with their own entrepreneurial bootlegging dream, Meyer and Lucky had to play for the old Italians. Those were the neighborhood rules, and this was no easy task. There were still warring factions in the neighborhood. Lucky even got kidnapped once by Masseria's rival, Salvatore Maranzano. Somehow, he survived. He knew enough of their old ways to position himself and his crew as too indispensable to kill. Lansky was lucky to have Lucky at his side. But the Mustache Peets were a look backwards. When it came to new business, they stuck to their own, Italians, segmented by the territories from Italy from which they hailed. Because of this, they were a rung down the ladder, and Lansky was a climber. He was a futurist. By January 1920, when Prohibition began, Meyer was asking Arnold Rothstein to teach him how to fix the future in his favor. And, to Meyer and Lucky's great fortune, Rothstein liked these kids. He liked imparting his wisdom. The gilded titans who Rothstein ran were not necessarily his peers. He was their supplier. He got them what they wanted. Girls, boys, drugs, gambling, relationships, even more money. But he wasn't a blue blood. He was a Jew. Wealthy, yes, but not a Rockefeller. And although his business was big, it was dirty. Rostin was at the parties. Hell, he threw the parties. So much so, F. Scott Fitzgerald based a character on him. But although he was the brain of the real Great Gatsby's underbelly, the men he was connected to kept him to the side. So, when Meyer and Lucky showed up, eyes wide, offering reverence, enthralled, well, Rothstein 
the political kingmaker, finally had his own court. He taught them everything, starting with his tailor and a taste for the good stuff. Pure, aged, fever dream fantasy, scotch, rum, and whiskey. That's what Arnold Rothstein could deliver for these kids. The brain knew. The way to corner the bootlegging market and build an empire of legacy wealth was not with junk from the stills. Meyer and Lucky would leave the hogwash and foot juice to the hillbillies and rubes. Their product would be quality. And that meant importing it. And this meant international business partners. Rothstein's people would be their suppliers, especially the distillery titans that Arnold knew in Canada and Great Britain. And getting product from them took ships. Lots and lots of ships. Yes, we covered Meyer Lansky's love for the automobile in our first episode and how he envisioned the role that trucks would play in distributing liquor across the United States. But we're talking about a galaxy of booze here. Produced and distributed for the consumption of an entire nation over the course of what would be 13 years. Getting it into the U.S. by trucking it all across the Canadian border wasn't going to work. Border roads were easy for U.S. law enforcement to watch and block. On top of that, the Mounties were serious motherfuckers. Even though the Fed's federal law enforcement as we know them today hadn't quite yet formed, Rostein had a grip on politicians, and Meyer and Lucky's crews had street influence over dock workers and local police. Despite all that, law enforcement was a major problem for our bootleggers. Rostein knew that our government was serious about enforcing prohibition. When it came to importing product by road across the Canadian border, all our government had to do was start cooperating with the Mounties, and the whole operation that Rostein plugged Meyer into would grind to a halt. Plus, Rostein's Canadian friends, the liquor distillery barons like Sam Bronfman and the Rifle family with their Bostonian partner, Joseph P. Kennedy, would be exposed in that scenario. And those men weren't putting their asses on the line. Yes, historians and filmmakers especially will point out that trucks were used for importing some booze. But for Rothstein and Meyer, automobiles could not and were not the primary way to get their product into the U.S. So, despite Lansky's love for those machines, Despite the vision that they gave him, which brought Meyer Lansky into a lifetime partnership with Lucky Luciano and inspired the beginnings of organized crime. Despite the trucks they ran and hijacked to connect their operation from one corner of our nation to the next. For the purpose of grasping this history, all I want you to see 
our ships. Put a mark in your brain as we dive into the complexity of what Meyer Lansky built and the activities that swirled throughout law enforcement to bring him down. Ships. See those shipping routes from Canada across the Great Lakes, from the British Isles across the Atlantic, from Western and Eastern Canadian coasts down the shorelines of our own, and from the Caribbean up to our southern ports. Just see ships in your brain. Ships, ships, ships. Okay, I know I dropped JFK's dad, Joe Kennedy, up there a bit. Sorry. You may have heard that his family fights this truth, and some biographers too, but he was a filthy criminal. We'll get into that later. Don't get distracted by it now, because it's time to revisit our lovers, Elizabeth and William Friedman. And don't tell anyone but it was indeed Elizabeth who exposed old Joe. While still engaged in World War I, the U.S. War Department had begun to send students, code-breaking trainees, to the Freedmen's at Riverbank, the think tank laboratory and country estate run by textile tycoon and madman, George Fabian. Having just invented the science of cryptanalysis while applying it, as they cracked all the War Department's coded intercepts, Elizabeth and William Friedman had no idea how to create a discipline out of their work. Still, they did it, and unleashed from their tutelage the first generation of U.S. government-trained codebreakers. But before the war ended, the Freedmen's had separate adventures, which would forever define and set the nature of their individual legacies. William joined the Army and left for Europe to apply his expertise, leaving Elizabeth behind at Riverbank. From that moment on, William's work the science that he and Elizabeth created together would be so burrowed within the depths of military intelligence classification, it was secret even from Elizabeth. When the war ended and William returned to Riverbank, he and Elizabeth spent a year planning their escape from George Fabian's clutches. They had a rare skill set, but that didn't mean there was work for them. Eventually, William found them both jobs in D.C. with the Army Signal Corps, and they moved in December 1920 to start their life and family. It was the same year that the Volstead Act passed domestically and the Nazi Party formed in Germany, two seminal events that would impact Elizabeth and her them in ways yet to be revealed. The Freedmen started their jobs on January 3, 1921, three days after a swarm of prohibition agents had scoured the nation's cities, 
making sure not one drop of champagne was sold, served, and consumed on the nation's first dry New Year's Eve. It was an odd time in a vibrant American city to be young, newly married, and incredibly interesting. But, alcohol or not, the Freedmans had a great beginning. They were surrounded by culture, had friends, solid paychecks, and soon, two children, a girl and boy. They were happy. For the Signal Corps, William continued his classified work, specializing now on the machines. Supposedly unbreakable cipher machines were proliferating after the war, and William was busy mastering any and all that the Army could get its hands on. But Elizabeth quit her job in 1922. She wasn't doing signal intelligence, like William, and preferred to start a family. Although biographers note that Elizabeth had been resistant to the idea of children, what seems more clear is that she didn't believe having children should subvert her career, where it was possible for her to be employed doing what she loved. So during this time, Elizabeth started writing, working on a children's book about code breaking. She may not have liked her first job out of college as a high school principal, but Elizabeth was a natural educator. She had the ability to deliver her knowledge in an easy, digestible way for anyone of any age to grasp. She was a great teacher. And soon, her lesson work on a blackboard would take down Al Capone. In 1925, a man named Charles Root knocked on Elizabeth's door. In the three years after leaving the Signal Corps, there had been a smattering of other knocks on her door, each offering temporary work and a plea for help in some code-breaking dilemma. But this knock, Charles Root's knock, was different. He was with the Coast Guard, an agency that Elizabeth knew was years ahead of others in its understanding and use of radio, the technology that brought signal intelligence into being. And Root's plea came with an offer from the U.S. Treasury. The T-men needed her help. It was only a very short time after we had moved into the Chevy Chase house that I was called by Captain Charles Root, a Coast Guard officer who had the title of Intelligence Officer for the United States Coast Guard. He was extremely interested in developing an anti- or counterintelligence work by the Coast Guard in its duties as one of the law enforcement agencies of the Treasury Department. There's an important historical note to make here about Elizabeth. From the moment she invented cryptanalysis, every powerful man who employed her directly or via an adjacent agency took credit for her work. Beginning with George Fabian, and as we'll soon see, the epical megalomaniac, J. Edgar Hoover. They all wore her efforts and her genius as their own. All of them except for one. Elmer Lincoln Irie began his four decades of public service in 1909 as a clerk for the chief postal inspector, a title he would eventually assume himself. But that wasn't his final stop. Irie would rise in his career to find himself headlined by Life magazine in 1946 as, quote, 
one of the world's greatest detectives. His success is attributed to his gift for organizing the efforts of law enforcement across a variety of agencies and diverse mix of personalities and egos. But the best way to understand him is perhaps through his nature. His biographers all comment on his modesty. William Slocum, who collaborated on Irie's memoir, called him a, quote, soft-spoken man who gave no outward sign that most of his life had been spent chasing gangsters, larcenous politicians, and other forms of conmen. By others' accounts, Irie was kind, deeply emotionally affected by violence, and driven to, quote, pursue evildoers with the fine impartiality of a force of nature. Elmer Irie was the man. In 1919, just before the Volstead Act went into effect, the Treasury's IRS commissioner, a man named Daniel Roper, appointed Irie as chief of a new six-man intelligence unit within the IRS. You see, the war effort had been partially funded by a steep tax hike. Irie's unit was initially established to investigate the resulting burgeoning crime spree, tax fraud. Thanks to Irie's incredible vision and leadership, that once tiny six-man unit would eventually grow into IRS Criminal Investigation, or IRSCI, one of the most formidable law enforcement agencies on the planet. At one point in 1939, Elmer Irie's Treasury Enforcement Team was responsible for over 64% of the criminals committed that year to federal penitentiaries. Back in the early days, in the 1920s, when the unit was still rather small, Irie's agents were known as T-men for Treasury men, a unit that was infinitely more feared by gangsters than J. Edgar Hoover's G-men. The T-men were so effective at hunting our bootleggers that Lucky Luciano called Elmer Uncle Irie out of respect. Even a federal judge couldn't resist giving a nickname to Irie's agents. The Giant Killers. That one, I've read, drove J. Edgar Hoover into an envious rage. Okay, so here's where I need to give a side note, you guys. Because of that movie, the one that cemented J. Edgar Hoover's propaganda around Al Capone and exactly who it was that took him down. Normally, I don't take hits at films as I've been writing them for studios for decades now and can attest to how miraculous it is that any screenplay gets made, let alone seen by an audience, regardless of how well they're written. Mine fall across the spectrum of meh to holy shit fantastic, and none have been made yet, just so you know. If you knew how rare it is, you'd marvel that you could sit in front of a screen and watch any story with actors in it. That said, the film The Untouchables makes me want to put my head through a wall. Which, if I did, would not be anywhere near as painful as knowing it was the great David Mamet who wrote that dreck. The sheer fallacy of the writing is an abomination. That Elliot Ness had a bespectacled accountant on his team coming up with the idea that Capone could be hunted through his LLCs is a vomitous distortion of Irie's legacy. And don't even get me started on the Sean Connery character. That was based on one of Irie's men as well, Mike Malone, the greatest undercover agent in law enforcement history who had nothing to do with Elliot Ness or J. Edgar Hoover. Honestly, the whole thing 
is such an atrocity that the only thing believable about it would be that J. Edgar's ghost must have Patrick Swayze the screenwriter's body a la Whippy Goldberg and stuck his haunted tongue down some studio exec's throat as if it were Demi Moore's. Well, at least they all got paid. All right, back to the truth about how and why the T-Men became giant killers. Well, we go back to the Volstead Act. That law placed the enforcement of prohibition under the Treasury's IRS. It was in the law. Once it did, Irie's small team started investigating the prohibition unit. Because our gangsters were so proficient in corrupting everyone from the lawmakers to the beat cops, Irie knew that in order to enforce prohibition, they had to first and foremost have a clean house. And with literally thousands of new prohibition agents across the nation, the opportunities for corruption were massive. And there was a place, above all others, that required immediate investigation, for its criminal giants had deadly hooks into all of law enforcement. New York City. Finding corrupt prohibition agents meant finding the men who corrupted them. And Arnold Rothstein was square in Uncle Irie's sights. Elmer Irie and his T-men would unlock everything about Arnold Rothstein's criminal operation, beginning with his export-import empire of booze. And it was Elizabeth Friedman who gave them the keys. The youngest daughter of a Quaker dairyman and politician, whose ancestors had come to America from England in 1682. The petite mother of two young children herself, who had married a Jewish man of Russian heritage. Elizabeth Smith Friedman, who had unlocked all the ciphers of the Great War, was now tasked by the T-Men to help take down a Jewish-Italian industry of vice. This was no Irish boy in the East River, splashing about with feet and fists and unchecked testosterone. This was the greatest intelligence agent ever contracted by law enforcement. She was Elmer Irie's doomsday machine. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.